0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting the book of Acts. Our text is Acts 10, 1 through 48. We've come now to a critical moment for the future of Christianity. At this moment, in Acts chapter 10, before we go any further in the story, we can imagine Christianity becoming stuck as a Jewish movement. Peter traveling throughout Judea and Samaria, encouraging the faithful in Christ Jesus, who by culture, continue to practice the Old Covenant commands just as always. Now, looking from outside in, there's no major cultural shift. Christians are just another subgroup of Jews. You've got your Pharisees and your Sadducees and your Zealots and your Essenes out by the Dead Sea, and now these Christians. You know, Pick one. They're all Jewish. Try for a moment to imagine that you've never heard of Christianity. You're studying comparative religions, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, the big three, and you start reading your assigned textbook, the chapter on first century Jewish denominations. Pharisees, Sadducees, Christians, they're the ones who think the Jewish Messiah has already come. And you're surprised to learn that they still exist. They call themselves Messianic Jews, And some non-Jews even attend their synagogues. Interesting. In Acts chapter 10, this is one of those moments where you can imagine a very, very different trajectory for the Christian movement. No worldwide impact, no going to all nations. Christianity remains a Jewish subgroup. Only those non-Jews willing to adopt Jewish culture become included. This is a critical moment. Now, will Peter cross the bridge from Old Covenant to New Covenant. Can he shake off his commitment to Old Covenant requirements and his own internal prejudice, which he's not even fully aware of? Well, we know he does, but he's going to need a lot of help to do so. First, stepping back and and considering this whole third part of Acts, we have two movements made up of two pairs of stories each. So we start with the two healings, then we have the two accounts related to Cornelius, the two accounts in Antioch, and the two accounts related to Herod. Central to the story are Peter's recognition that God does not distinguish between Jew and Gentile, and the planting of a church of Jews and Gentiles in the significant Gentile city of Antioch. David Gooding recognizes in all these stories a shift away from Jerusalem, the shift is both cultural and administrative. Jewish culture will not dominate the growing Christian movement, and Jerusalem will not be established as the central hub of top-down administration for the growing movement. We're going to see a significant shift in the nature of the people of God, which, under the Old Covenant, was intentionally Jewish in religious culture and was intentionally centralized with administrative leadership of priests and king. In Jerusalem. The new covenant is a new wineskin, not old covenant 2.0. With the new covenant, God is transitioning to a different plan, a different vision for the cultural and administrative makeup of his people. We've already noted how the new covenant vision for reaching the world is one of going out rather than pulling in. The old covenant prophetic vision saw the Gentiles streaming into Zion, Jesus directed a move out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the remotest parts of the earth. That movement outward is what we'll see through the book of Acts. New covenant evangelism and missions does not wait for non-believers to come in. New covenant evangelism and missions goes out. The first going out was initiated by the persecution that followed Stephen's death. In our first two stories, in this third part of Acts, we see Peter going out not because of persecution, but because of what appears to be intentional ministry strategy. He's outside of Jerusalem, giving witness to Christ, and strengthening the saints in the towns on the southern end of the plain of Sharon. Peter didn't plant these churches, and it's not clear that he's exerting any administrative control over them. As we go through Acts, we will see the role of the apostles diminish even in Jerusalem, where James the Elder will take the lead role. Church tradition tells us that the apostles saw themselves as missionaries, tasked as sent ones to take the gospel out. They go out. They don't stay to administrate. The second pair of stories, after those two miracle stories with Peter, address a cultural shift away from a Jewish center. The cultural shift is enabled by a theological transition from what it means to be the people of God in Old Covenant to a new definition for what it means to be the people of God in the New Covenant. The transition is going to be both theological and cultural because the Old Covenant requirements created a really distinct religious culture for Israel. And so when you move away from those theological requirements, then it, it changes the culture. It's important to recognize this difference between theological requirement and culture in order to correctly understand Peter's struggle regarding entering into a Gentile home to give witness to Jesus. The challenge for Peter is not merely cultural. It's not merely the case of a missionary forcing himself to eat a grub or to drink yak milk, You know the, the hard things that missionaries do to, to, to cross culture. But this for Peter is is something deeper, it's something more. The challenge is theological. He's being required to accept a transition away from the word of God that he was taught all his life. Our two stories here include the conversion of Cornelius' household, described in chapter 10, and Peter's report of that conversion to the brothers in Jerusalem, which is described in chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Working together, these stories raise two very significant issues I want to address. The first issue concerns Gentile inclusion into the New Covenant in light of the Old Covenant restrictions. You know How are we to understand the transition from Old to New that makes Gentile inclusion possible? The second issue I want to address concerns the work of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues experienced by the members of Cornelius' household. In this lesson, we'll cover the conversion that happens in chapter 10 and the first issue of of how to understand the inclusion of Gentiles into covenant. And so then I'll wait for our next lesson to cover Peter's defense of his actions back in Jerusalem and to then also consider the second issue of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit among the Gentiles. So for this lesson, culture, covenant, and the inclusion of Gentiles, let's dive into the narrative. If the story occurs over four successive days, we start with the first day, reported in Acts 10, through 8 Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him, and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa, and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants, And after he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Caesarea is as Gentile a city as we can get while still in Judea. It's the Roman capital of the province. Herod the Great built the city on the site of a smaller town, giving it a man-made harbor, theater, an amphitheater, and even a temple dedicated to Caesar. Jews were a minority in the city. Luke tells us Cornelius belonged to the Italian cohort, or battalion. A cohort made up of Roman legionaries consisted of 600 men. Uh, A cohort made up of men in the provinces consisted of 1,000 men. And Supposedly, there were no legionary cohorts in Judea at the time. So either Cornelius is an officer in a battalion originally raised in Italy, but now consisting of provincial troops, or he has retired from the Italian cohort, And he he keeps his rank and his designation, but he's settled in Caesarea. So we're not sure. Unembellished details like this support Luke's reputation as a historian. Uh, They also tell us something about the man Cornelius. He's Roman, he's military, and he's an officer. He is definitely not Jewish in his culture or worldview. Though the Jewish worldview has begun to have an effect on him, he feared God. We don't know if he feared God exclusively. It would be a significant step for a Roman to worship the God of Judea. That would be a big step. It would be a gigantic step for a Roman to worship the God of the Jews as the one and only true God. We're not sure how far along the continuum of fearing God this centurion has come. Luke does indicate the significant impact faith in God has made on his wallet and his day planner. Not only did he give his money in charity to Jews in need, but he gave generously. And not only did he give his time in prayer to God, but he gave it continuously. You know, Faith in God has made a big impact in his day-to-day priorities. In fact, the angel who appears says, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. You know, his time and money uh, show the sincerity of his faith. He is a true seeker of God. He has knocked, and now God is opening the door. I really like the specificity of the directions the angel gives. Drive south until you come to Joppa, and when you get in town, take the street running along the coast and look for the sign of a tanner. You'll probably smell it before you see it. Ask for Simon, and then there's going to be another Simon staying with him. You really can't make a mistake. Two Simons in a Tanner's home on the coast in Joppa. Oh, and the second Simon is also called the Rock, Peter. He's the one you want. Cornelius is open about his faith in his household. He summons uh, two personal servants and a devout soldier and explains everything. And he sends them to Joppa immediately. Now we turn in our story to Peter in Joppa. You know Cornelius is prepared. Peter needs to be prepared. And this is day two. This is Acts 10:9 to 23a. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky open up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And they were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs, and accompany them without misgivings for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. Our scene has moved about 50 miles, just over 60 kilometers south to Joppa. The day starts at 6 in the morning, so the sixth hour of the day is noon. Peter's hungry for lunch. The roof has a flat top. He's gone up there to pray while he's waiting, and he falls into a trance. In the trance, Peter sees a portion of the animal kingdom. Crawling creatures here seems to refer to reptiles. There's no mention of insects or sea creatures, but this group will do. According to the food laws in Leviticus 11, some of the four-footed animals are considered clean, cow and sheep, for example, while others are considered unclean, like the camel and pig. All reptiles are considered unclean. Among the birds, pigeon and chicken are clean, but raptors and scavengers like the eagle and buzzard are unclean. One of the principles seems to be that all scavengers are unclean, the animals associated with eating dead flesh, whether mammals or sea creatures or birds, you know, pig crab, vulture, all unclean. There might be some protective reasoning in that. God is protecting the Israelites from the more toxic meat of scavengers. The connection to death fits the primary purpose of these ceremonial laws, which is to make a symbolic statement about spiritual truth. Clean and unclean animals are clean and unclean symbolically to remind the Israelites of the moral uncleanliness of sin and to call them to cleanliness, purity in their walk with God. This symbolic teaching purpose extends to the whole ceremonial cleanliness code, including the code regarding food, but also regarding dead bodies, human and animal, contagious diseases, bodily fluids. And in all of that, there does seem to be a secondary hygienic or medical value and two primary purposes. One primary purpose is the symbolic pedagogical purpose, pointing to the reality of moral and spiritual cleanliness. Uh, A second primary purpose is to separate the Israelites from the pagan worship of their Gentile neighbors. The cleanliness code creates a barrier that Gentiles can choose to pass through if they'll accept Jewish law, but Jews are forbidden to cross for the protection of their monotheistic society. There is purpose in the ceremonial cleanliness code. But to be ceremonially unclean is not the same thing as actually being morally unclean. It is a designation assigned by God for specific purposes. So to eat bacon is not sinful in and of itself, but when God says don't do something, then it's sin to knowingly disobey his clear command. So to break these commands while under Old Covenant, while they're still in force, is the immorality of rebellion. That's the life Peter grew up in. Now, Peter has already recognized some sort of shift away from the ceremonial laws of clean and unclean. You know, this is suggested by the fact that he's staying with a tanner. By nature of their vocation, you know, by dealing daily with the skin of dead animals, tanners are continuously unclean in a symbolic ceremonial sense. They, it's tough for them to get to temple. People who come into contact with tanners then can easily become unclean. And yet here is Peter staying in the house of a tanner, seemingly unconcerned with being ceremonially unclean himself. Peter has made this small step away from the ceremonial cleanliness code within his own Jewish culture. God is going to push him out to a much larger step away from the Old Covenant cleanliness code. God puts Peter into a trance and shows him animals, both clean and unclean. And Peter is told in his vision, Get up, kill, and eat. And he's not surprising being told to kill and eat. Peter doesn't pick up his food in plastic wrap from the meat section at the grocery store. He's familiar with this fact of life that to eat meat, one has to kill an animal. So that doesn't surprise him. He's surprised at the implication that he can kill and eat any of the animals he chooses. And so ignore Levitical law. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Peter's resistance is both theological and cultural. To understand the cognitive dissonance Peter is going through, the mental dismay, uh, we need to consider the nature of the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And to do that, we need to consider two essential questions of covenant. When we enter into covenant with God, there are two different questions that must be asked. This is true of the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant. The first question of covenant asks, what makes me righteous enough to be in covenant relationship with God? We can answer that question in terms of law and grace, with with law being what we do and grace being what God does. So on a scale from zero to a hundred percent, how much of this question depends on law and how much depends on grace know, how much depends on what I do and how much depends on what God does for me? What makes me righteous enough to be in covenant relationship with God? When I ask this first question of covenant of students, I get quite a range of answers. What percentage is God's part? What percentage is our part? You know, It's 50% law, 50% grace. No, no, no. 100% law, 0% grace. 10% law, 90% grace. Well, the biblical answer for the first question of covenant is clear and emphatic. The only way for you to be righteous enough to enter into covenant relationship with holy God is is if you enter in based 0% on the law that you keep and 100% on the grace that God gives to you. This is really counterintuitive to to all human religious system. All of our systems are about the law we keep, and that is not Bible. It's not Old Covenant. It's not New Covenant. You can only enter by grace. If even 0.1% depends on you, you will mess it up and become guilty of the whole law. Perfection is required. Perfection of thought, of word, and action. God's holiness is too high for anything less. And so for us, perfection is found only in Jesus Christ as a gift of grace. After this event, later in his ministry, Peter is going to forget what happened in this vision and happened with Cornelius, and he's going to slip back towards Jewish food requirements to the exclusion of Gentile brothers and sisters. And it's going to happen while he's visiting the church in Antioch. Paul tells us about this in Galatians chapter two, this incident where Peter affirms a public division between Jew and Gentile. Jews eat at one table, Gentiles at another table. Paul rebukes Peter by focusing him back onto this first question of covenant. Peter, remember, You've got to remember Peter. And we read what he said to Peter in Galatians 2, 15 to 16. Peter, we are Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we, even we who have the law of Moses, we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, Since, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It doesn't work. It was never the intention. This was true under Old Covenant, and it continues to be true under New Covenant. The law points us to our need for grace. For all biblical covenants, the answer to the first question remains the same. What makes me righteous enough to be in relationship with Holy God? Grace. 100% grace. The righteousness that gives you standing with God is wholly a gift that you receive by faith. As Paul tells the Romans, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now, this is not the the big question that's really troubling Peter here. He may have the questions mixed up a little bit, but it's, it's the second question of covenant that Peter's really having resistance to having established the basis for a relationship with God, you know that it's 100% by grace, we're now ready to ask that second question. How then shall I live? Having entered into relationship with God by grace through faith, how then shall I live? What are God's expectations of me? And that's what covenant does. Covenant lays out the expectations of the King of Kings. How does he want his people to live? And so the answer to that question is not the same for all biblical covenants. Abraham was given an answer, but that that answer was kind of subsumed, updated in the Mosaic covenant, which was given for all Israel. But then that answer is changed when the Mosaic covenant ends and a new covenant begins. So this is an essential point. If you are under the old covenant, then the laws the stipulations the commands of that covenant are all good and they all apply to you they don't exist as a standard to make you acceptable to god you know that doesn't work in any covenant they do exist as god's moral and ritual expectations for you as a child a servant of god for how you should seek to love him and serve him and worship him with your life you know how do i do how do i love my heavenly father How do I worship my God? How do I serve my king? How do I do that? This is the question of a true believer. And the Old Covenant answers that question. Old Covenant believers ought to pursue with mind and heart and strength the stipulations of the covenant. Those laws are righteous, holy, and good, a means God has given by which his people express love and gratitude and worship in relationship to him. The transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant brings about a change of stipulations. The question is the same. How then shall we live? What are God's expectations? But the the expectations have changed. The moral expectations have not changed. The moral reality remains the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His, his moral nature doesn't change, and so the moral commands are largely all repeated in the New Covenant writings. The transition from old to new doesn't essentially bring about a A new vision of morality, God's moral will doesn't change. There are two other major areas of change uh, that do occur when we ask the question, how then shall I live, Uh, not as an old covenant member of the people of God, but as a new covenant member of the people of God. So what does change? First, the civil code of the old covenant is no longer required. The calendar laws, the punishments, the civil actions Uh, The people of God is no longer to be organized as a geopolitical entity. That civil law was an essential part of the Old Covenant vision for Israel, the people of God, a real nation in a real place, geopolitical. The New Covenant people of God are organized spiritually as those who believe in Jesus Christ. We're a remnant in all cultures. And those of us who have entered into union with him, we are now the church, and so the civil code is not included in the new covenant. God lets it fall out. Second, the ceremonial code that symbolically pointed to Jesus has both been fulfilled and therefore ended in Jesus Christ. So the sacrificial law, the temple law, the food laws, these have all ended with the transition from old covenant to new covenant. Jews may still choose to apply old covenant civil code in their laws, in the laws of Israel. They can you can still hold those codes and, and follow Old Testament law. Uh, they may choose to continue to apply Old Covenant ceremonial behaviors as a way to honor God. So the early Christians, they're, they're going to temple. And we're, we're going to see Christians at the end of Acts who are, who are making vows and even offering sacrifice. You know, they're keeping the food laws. But they're not requirements. You know, there's no longer any theological basis requiring obedience Jews are not to continue living under the Old Covenant while Gentiles embrace the New Covenant. There's not that kind of division. All of God's people are now under New Covenant. The Old has ended in Christ. Continuance in Old Covenant practice is no longer a theological requirement. But you can still do it if you find it wise. The Old Covenant um, laws and practices can be part of your culture. That's not forbidden under the New Covenant. This is the struggle for Peter the theological basis for these distinctly Jewish cultural practices has been removed. So we we might say now that they are merely cultural, whereas before they were commanded and therefore became cultural. God has said the food laws are no longer required. sacrifices is, is no longer required. Does that mean you should stop doing these things? Well, that's a question of wisdom. You can continue with these practices if they do not prevent you from loving God and loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. But when these behaviors contradict the gospel and contradict expectations expressed by God in New Covenant, you need to let the old go. Peter's got to face that reality, and it's tough. Cultural values are deep-seated. Peter and his Jewish brethren easily accept some aspects of the New Covenant. Other aspects of the New Covenant challenge these values that they feel so deeply they just can't get over them. And keeping the food laws is one of those values that's so ingrained in an observant Jew like Peter that he can't help feeling revulsion. You know, It's an emotive response at the thought of eating something unclean. My brother told me a story while he was serving as a missionary. He had a, a surreal experience. of He, he passed by A butcher shop, and he looked at a strange animal skinned and hung up on a hook for sale. As his eyes scanned down the body of the animal, you know, he was just looking in curiosity. His mind focused in on the unskinned face of a German shepherd. And at that moment, his emotions revolted in disgust. I try to use that as a a way to imagine Peter's response. The sheet lowering down, you know, there's no, he's curious and all these animals are running around, no problem. But when the voice says, kill and eat anything, Peter's response is not the response of a person who would love to eat bacon if he were just allowed. Uh Uh-uh. No, that the rat, the vulture, the pig, the camel, the dog, the thought of eating those animals, it wasn't just a choice, it's detestable. But is it sinful? Well, it was when he was a boy. His cultural revulsion for eating such meat came out of a correct theological understanding of correct Old Covenant expectations, requirements. Those requirements have ended. Peter's values are still ingrained. The food laws are a part of who he is, a part of what it means for him to be Jewish. And it's not so easy for him to unravel the theology from the culture there's some parallels here to, to everybody who grows up in a religious household to the rules of your church or the rules of your family you know it's not always easy to unravel you know why did we do that and why couldn't we listen to that or sing that or or, or play that or why did we have to wear that or we couldn't watch that or eat that or or we couldn't hang out with them or uh, were the, was there any reason why and it just feels wrong now how do I unravel my cultural values from biblical theology. It's not easy, and I believe that's why God is going to do such lengths to reassure Peter. We see in this whole story that God's doing a lot to make sure Peter gets the message. And it's not all completely new to Peter. When Jesus was on earth, Peter had heard him say, Listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Mark 714 to 15. And the disciples, including Peter, didn't understand, and they questioned Jesus at the time about what he meant. And Jesus said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and it's eliminated. Mark 718 to 19. And then Mark even goes on to, to add a side comment, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Peter had heard this before, but he's pretty nervous about getting it right. He doesn't feel the freedom in himself to eat. It's, it's, there's a revulsion. It feels wrong. So God sets up this whole story to help convince Peter of the correct application to the word of truth that he's already received from Jesus. you know It's okay, Peter, this is new covenant. Under the new covenant, the ceremonial cleanliness laws fall away. And when the ceremonial cleanliness laws fall away, the barrier to interact with Gentiles falls away. That was the big problem with going into a Gentile home. You, you know they don't follow the food laws, along with whatever other uncleanliness laws they're breaking. And if contact with the Gentile does not make you unclean, you know when you go as a guest into an ancient Near Eastern home, you're going to be served food. And you know that politeness will demand that you eat the food. So it's just, it's just a lot safer to stay outside. You just don't go into a Gentile home. But that which was right under Old Covenant is no longer required. The barrier has been removed, and God is taking some pains to help Peter unravel the theology of New Covenant from his deeply held cultural values. The first, God repeats the vision three times to make sure Peter gets it. You know, it's not a nightmare vision you had just because you know sunstroke and hunger, um, but it, it's repeated. And then while Peter's still perplexed about the vision, and you know, this is God's excellent sense of timing, God has the men from Cornelius show up right then. So when the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter and says, go down, to these men. They're right there. And God doesn't send the servants with a simple request from Cornelius. You know, God's already done some pre-prep. He sends them with a claim that a holy angel initiated the invitation from that end. So the timing, the nature of the message on top of the vision are enough to convince Peter to go and see. And he's going to take day three to travel, uh, and then he'll enter into Caesarea on day four. So listen to the dialogue that occurs when Peter arrives in Acts ten twenty three b to 48 And on the next day he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for him and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I asked for what reason you have sent for me. Cornelius said, Four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace, through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Well, this is good. There, there are three paragraphs here. Uh, first, in 23b to 27, we find Cornelius waiting with close friends and relatives. You know, presumably, there are also servants and soldiers present like the, the three he sent to Peter, and Cornelius has already called them together. You know, that speaks to his excitement to have everyone close to him hear the message this servant of God would bring. When Peter arrives, Cornelius falls to his feet to worship him, that's a reminder, I think, that Cornelius, while fearing God and, and praying to God, is coming out of a different worldview. And he doesn't understand how to correctly interpret Peter's role. An angel had announced Peter, so maybe perhaps Peter is greater than the angel. You know, so Cornelius falls down, but Peter corrects Cornelius, Stand up, I too am just a man. And Peter enters and sees the crowd assembled. The second paragraph, verses 28 to 33, begins with Peter answering the question everybody is thinking. Now, good Jews don't enter into our homes. How is it now that this guy enters in? You know, what relationship will his message have to the God of Israel if he, being a Jew, is disobedient to the law of God? You know What's his view of Scripture if he's not keeping the law? So Peter explains without being asked, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. Then he asked a question of his own. So I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? The the answer is a fabulous setup for an evangelist. Cornelius retells part of the story, explaining that a man in shining garments told him his prayer to God was answered and he should send a Joppa for a man named Peter. And he concludes, now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. You know, that's, that's an awesome setup. You know, here we are. Tell us what God wants us to know. So in the third P- paragraph, verses 34 to 43, Peter tells them, he speaks a message that parallels the four evangelistic speeches we heard him preach in Jerusalem in Acts 2 through 5. And there's no major change here Uh, Well, two significant changes. First, he doesn't accuse the Gentiles of murdering the Messiah. That's a charge we only see being made in the early sermons to the Jews of Jerusalem, this direct accusation of murdering Jesus. Second, before starting, and this is different, Peter comments on what he has learned these past few days. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Peter is not saying that under the old covenant, God did show partiality and now God no longer shows partiality. The change is not with God, the change is with Peter's understanding. He seems to be saying that in his own practice of the cleanliness code, he assumed partiality. And that's a natural fault of the sin in all religious people, to assume some special privilege with God based on our particular obedience to a certain theology or custom or practice. We need to see ourselves as, as special. And when we do that, we then we have this prejudice against other people who do religion in a different way. The ritual system that God created is a barrier between Jews and the pagan practices of non-Jews, Easily became a source of pride and prejudice for observant Jews. So God shook Peter when he forced Peter to reevaluate the food laws in light of the new covenant. Having been shaken, Peter was then able to take a, a new look at his own presuppositions. And, and, he, and he saw this false presumption that Jews are better than Gentiles. At the first question of covenant. Has, had always provided an open door to anyone who would receive the grace of God by faith. And that was true under Old Covenant. It wasn't just for Jews. Gentiles had always been acceptable by faith. Abraham himself was called out of the Gentiles. The Egyptians who went up with the Israelites from the Exodus were acceptable to God. Rahab, Ruth, Naaman were acceptable to God. The people of Nineveh who responded to Jonah's witness were acceptable to God. God doesn't show partiality. But the Old Covenant answer to the second question of covenant, which emphasized this protection of the people, required a significant step culturally for Gentiles who wanted to participate in covenant relationship with Yahweh. Gentiles would need to accept the religious requirements of the Mosaic law. They would have to step away from their own culture towards a different culture. The New Covenant answer to the second question of covenant lowers the protective element of ritual requirement. It doesn't protect us so much with with all these customs and rituals, which enables God's New Covenant people to more easily enter into pagan culture and allows Gentiles to retain much of their native culture. It's not forbidden under New Covenant. This freedom of culture is both a blessing and also the source of new challenges for the people of God And we'll come back to some of those challenges when we get to chapter 15. For now, Peter has come to understand that the move to New Covenant removes the ceremonial barrier between Jew and Gentile. And he's faced his own prejudice towards Gentiles. And coming to the realization that God indeed does not show partiality over one ethnic group or the other. This understanding frees Peter to enter into this Gentile home and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to this Gentile audience in pretty much the exact terms that he has preached the gospel to Jews. He acknowledges his listeners' awareness of the ministry of Jesus. You all know what has been happening in the land through Jesus. He claims to be a witness, which is what he regularly does. He gives testimony to Jesus' crucifixion and to his resurrection, he emphasizes the bodily resurrection of Jesus by claiming that, that they ate and drank with Jesus. He names Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead. Uh, he claims the prophets gave witness to this. Um, and and those, these people are Gentiles. They're aware enough of Jewish faith to appreciate that Peter is saying that his gospel is in line with Jewish scripture. You know, the prophets declared this. And he concludes by claiming that everyone who believes in Jesus receives the forgiveness of sin. Those last words parallel Peter's quote from Joel two thirty two in in his first sermon at Pentecost. It shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I imagine that that word everyone it's in both places everyone who calls on the name will will be saved everyone who believes um, that word everyone must have had an impact on Peter at Pentecost you know as he was preaching to Jews. And God fears from all over the Roman and Parthian empires who had come to be in Jerusalem, uh, but everyone at that point in time meant everyone who is willing to be like us, you know everyone who has embraced our culture who has come to the Feast of Pentecost. it felt like everyone, but Peter's concept of everyone needs to be enlarged, and it is here being enlarged to include. Uh, not just everyone who's willing to come towards us, but everyone of any culture everywhere who seeks God and wants to walk with him. And It must have been a very different experience for Peter than at Pentecost. Now, now here, preaching to this Gentile audience in the Gentile home in a Gentile-majority city, you know, the word everyone it means so much more. Peter didn't change his gospel presentation much at all for them. You know, he, he only leaves out an invitation to repent and believe, but that's because the Holy Spirit beats him to it. You know, he would have said that. Uh, but here's the effect of Peter's witness, verses forty four to forty eight. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Can a person be born again in a moment? What about a room full of people? Can a room full of people be born again in in a moment? Well, what about a room full of people who don't know much Bible at all and have grown up with a very different non-biblical worldview? Can they all can they all be born again? Yes, they can. Peter had barely finished his gospel message. He didn't even get to challenge them to believe. It wasn't necessary. God had already done the work, and he'd been working on Cornelius for years, the religious customs of an imperial Roman soldier left Cornelius wanting for something more. And he found it when he was posted in Israel. His longing drew him to Yahweh. And what he understood of God moved him into prayer. It, it motivated him to, to give, to care for people around him. He was so hungry to believe that he invited everyone close to him to, to come hear this message. You know, His heart was ripe, and the integrity of his own search for truth had had a significant effect on his relatives and friends and servants. The the whole field was white for harvest. The whole house church was born into Christ that day. And Peter recognized the manifestation of the Holy Spirit as proof that the gospel had genuinely been received. So he ordered that they be baptized. Then and there, in the name of Jesus. I'll end by repeating the two significant lessons God taught Peter through this. First, Peter moved forward in his understanding that the Old Covenant had come to an end, and with it the cleanliness code was now optional. Now, in this lesson, I have just touched on the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant and the importance of distinguishing between the two questions of covenant. I'm, I'm not going deeper into the two questions of covenant in, in this series. If you would like to understand better biblical covenant, I recommend my series on interpreting the Pentateuch. If you want just a couple of lessons, I recommend the Pentateuch lesson on Genesis 12 through 15, Abraham 1, and the Romans series lesson on Romans three twenty-one to 30. I address the first question of covenant in both of those places. I've also posted a link on my homepage at observetheword.com to a PDF article called The Two Questions of Covenant. And we will come back to this concept. It'll be important in Acts chapter 15. Peter's first lesson was about the end of the cleanliness code, which removed the ceremonial barrier between him and Gentiles. His second lesson had to do with his own prejudice as a Jew, which assumed God's special favor. And I'll I'll end with his words on, on this lesson he learned. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions or if you'd like to see some overview charts that go along with our study of the book of Acts then check out our resource page at observetheword.com You can also find there our previous series on the book of Romans, the Pentateuch, and the Gospel of John.